All right. Well, we are continuing in the book of Exodus, and so if you have a Bible with you or want to pull it up on your smartphone, uh, you can go ahead and get to Exodus 15, where we'll be started in a moment. Uh, Have you ever had this experience in your life where you have been struggling with an area of weakness or sin for some time, and then you come to this point where you feel like, man, a breakthrough moment by God's grace, uh, somehow you you get to this place where it's it's no longer binding you in the way that it was for so long, And, and right as you're getting used to that sense of victory, maybe something happens, maybe it's weeks or months later. And you slip. You slip up and you fail. And you think, ah, I so thought that I was over this. What's going on? You know, and and you deal with the frustration of that kind of an experience. And this tendency that we have to have a specific kind of besetting sin in our life, a struggle, it's why groups like Alcoholics Anonymous uh, go by the mantra, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Now, Though I'd push back, biblically speaking, on that definition a bit, the reason they hold that view is because they know something. They know that even if you've had significant victory over an area of struggle in your life, oftentimes you're still going to be vulnerable. There's still going to be at times a temptation to slip back into those same unhealthy patterns, those same unhealthy ways of thinking. And this can manifest it in, of course, all sorts of ways, like Overeating, anger, a critical spirit, laziness, sexual sin of some sort, a whole host of other categories as well. Um, Even as a pastor, which really I'm no different than any of you, but the reality is I've seen this in my own life also. I've talked in the past about how I have this tendency towards workaholism, which the Bible would label a form of idolatry rooted in my pride and my desire to please people. So, so for me, there's this competing desire that I feel at times where there's on one side this allegiance to the desire to glorify God as I serve him and advance his mission, and then this competing desire, which is really a slavery to people-pleasing, to proving my value and worth through how others look at me. And so, as some of you know, those who have been around for a while, you know you're familiar with our story, that, that me running at this high RPM, five years after planting this church and just being driven by at times this desire I hit the wall and it was a significant time of crisis and shaping for me and my family because I recognized for the first time the degree at which I was hurting other people by this onset this besetting sin in my life and the beautiful thing is by the grace of God it was a major breakthrough I mean I really grew through that time and God taught me a lot however Just a week ago, I'm sitting there talking to my wife, Carrie, and she says, Scott, I I noticed you've taken on some significant things, but haven't really seemed to let go of anything. In other words, she saw this indication in my life that my old way of thinking, this slavery mindset, still had a bit of a hold. I was falling back into some previous ways of thinking. And of course, I'm going, ah, you know, really? Is this still an issue for me? Now, I share all of these examples because they reflect what we're going to see in today's journey in the book of Exodus chapter 15. As we've learned in previous sermons out of Exodus, Israel, they came through hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. Okay, so a lot of hardship. 
And then they observed God, by His grace, bring these plagues upon the people in Egypt and upon Pharaoh with the desire to loosen his grip upon them. And then last, a few weeks ago, we saw the parting of the Red Sea. They were backed up and the the armies of Pharaoh were upon them. And then God parted the sea and he let them through. And not only that, but the, the waters came down, wiping out Pharaoh's army, eliminating once and for all any perceived threat and fear that would be in the minds and hearts of God's people. And then last week, we had the joy of just seeing how this exodus and this wonderful act of saving grace by the Lord, this hallmark moment for the Jewish people, caused them to erupt in praise. And they just celebrated and they sang about the deliverance of the Lord and His faithfulness to them. And yet, as we're going to see in today's story... Just days after this epic deliverance of God, they're going to face another trial. Much smaller in proportion, but it's going to lead them down the path of grumbling and complaining. It's as though Israel was saying, Really, God? You saved us after hundreds of years of slavery. You parted the waters for us, and now we're going to die of thirst in the desert? Really? I want to invite Carrie to come on up, and she's going to read for us. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to verses 22 through 27 of of chapter 15 in Exodus. And let's follow along now with the reading of God's Word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute, a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you. That I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where they were there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we bring our prayers to you now, asking that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to see and hear exactly what it is we need to hear today, Lord, because Uh, Though uh, none of us in this room are omnipresent or omniscient, Lord, you are. You know every single story. You're actively working in and upon every single heart. And we pray, God, that you'd do that and that you'd mold and shape us that we might be different because of what it is that your word had to teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in today's story, we're going to observe and learn from three different things. Number one that the people of Israel, they face a problem. Namely, that they're in the wilderness without drinkable water, and they are thirsty. And this problem, it leads to grumbling. Number two, we're going to see that God provides for his people by making the water safe to drink, leading to an end of, of course, their grumbling by satisfying their thirst. And then three, we're going to see that God shares a promise with the people that if they hold fast to his word, 
He will provide for them as healer. And then he follows this promise by blessing them above and beyond their wildest expectation. So let's first just take a look again at the problem. Look at verses 20 through, 22 through 24. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, I want to take a moment to direct you to a map. Now, if you, if you Google maps of the Exodus, you're going to see all sorts of different things. But this is one of the more reputable sources I came upon. And so uh, what you see in the upper left there is really the region of Goshen where uh, the Israelites were living. And then the representation is they come to that northern edge of the Red Sea, and that's where they crossed. And then you see to the right of that, they enter the wilderness of Shur and kind of see that red line continuing in that path. And if you look at that map, you might be thinking, well, that's not that far. They, you know, shouldn't have been complaining, right? I mean, what faithless Israelites to have seen such great deliverance and then just move their way into the wilderness area must have been such faithless people. And, and, and while that response in one sense may be accurate, let me show you some of the photos from this part of the world. Okay, as you can see, it's, uh, it's at times, it's treacherous terrain. It's a lot more like a desert than how it is that we here in this part of the world would describe a wilderness. So it's, it's hot, it's dry, there are at times sandstorms. One could estimate that this journey that they took was about 36 miles over three days, so maybe 12 miles a day, which, again, doesn't sound all that bad, except when you think about the fact that we're talking at least tens of thousands of people. Average human uh, will die of thirst in a few days if they don't get water. And of course, these, these, this uh, massive group of people included elderly people. It included infants and, and newborns. It included livestock that they needed to keep alive. And, and, and to make matters worse, then, here they're dealing with this thirst. And then... If you can imagine, they, they see a spring of water in the distance, and those who are young and have the strength to do so, they run ahead and, and, and dip their, their hand into the water and take a drink only to spit it out because it's so bitter. It added insult to injury. They were literally thirsting to death, and then in this wake of relief, it almost feels cruel, doesn't it? They... They see that this water, it's polluted likely by the minerals. Maybe it's like drinking ocean water, right? It's distasteful. Now, we're not exactly sure if uh, the way it's written here, if the Israelites named this place or, or if it was named before they came there, but Mara, it means bitter. So even the name represents what this meant for them. What I want us to see here is that their problem is real. Okay, it's a, it's a real problem. I think all of us, if we were in this similar environment, we would be tempted to anger and frustration. And yet Israel is grumbling. It stands in stark contrast to all the wonderful, miraculous, amazing things that they had seen just days before. Days before, they were rejoicing at God's provision, at his miraculous salvation, and now they grumbled against Moses. Now, this is the first time that the Hebrew word for grumbling is used in the Bible. 
And we see it used seven more times in the Old Testament. Exodus 15, Exodus 16, 17, Numbers 14, 16, and 17, and then Joshua 9. And in each instance, it reflects the rebellious attitude of the Israelites against their leaders and authority. It's as though they're saying, how dare you, Moses? How dare you, God? You save us from such horrible circumstances only to let us die here in the wilderness. And this is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, teaching on idolatry, he points us back to the Israelites as an example of how not to behave. He's saying, don't be faithless like those Israelites with their grumbling and complaining. But the reality is, in light of all of this, as we reflect on our own lives, we know by experience that life is difficult. My thoughts go to the recent news that uh, Michael referenced. You know, we have the 17 high school students and teachers who were gunned down by this mentally ill student with an automatic rifle. And our hearts hurt for them. What terrible uh, anguish they must be in. And, and this is in the wake of so many other things that are going on in the world. Other school shootings and wars and, and terrorism. And It should leave us shaking our heads at just how broken this world is. But these difficulties, they also translate in our, into our own homes, don't they? They translate into our own hearts. Maybe you're struggling with ongoing challenges related to your marriage or to singleness. Uh, depression, thoughts of suicide. Maybe you're sick. Maybe there's a loss of a job or infertility. Wayward children. Maybe a difficult work environment. The reality is that the struggles in this life are very, very real. And therefore, the ability to find faith and to put your faith in the Lord, it is a struggle at times. So, so where is your faith struggling? Where is it that you're tempted to question God's goodness in the midst of these struggles as you're tempted to grumble and complain? Well, let's continue now looking at God's provision. Verse 25. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So the first thing worth noting here is Moses' response to the grumbling of Israel. Does he yell at them? You foolish Israelites! Does he immediately come up with a new plan? No. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He asks the Lord for help. And though Israel should have also done that, right? The issue wasn't that they were suffering. They were suffering, legitimately so. But they didn't cry out to God. They grumbled. And so Moses asked the Lord on their behalf. And what did God do? He said, throw this log into the water. Now, there is some evidence that there are some forms of trees that can have a purifying effect over time on contaminated water. But searching for some kind of scientific explanation, some kind of naturalist reality here, it's, it's a stretch, and it misses the intention of the text. Speculation about how a tree could eliminate mineral salt from water is just as silly 
as speculation about how the Nile could turn to blood, as we saw earlier, or how a staff could turn into a snake and then back to a staff again. The point of throwing the log into the water, it's not about method, it's about miracle. The point is that God was using something simple and maybe even a little silly in order to magnify his power, taking that which is ordinary to do something extraordinary. And isn't that how God loves to work? If you think about it, what happens here is the reverse miracle of what happened months before in Egypt. Remember what the Lord did in Egypt. He turned the sweet water of the Nile, the water of the oppressor, into blood. Here he performed the opposite miracle. For his children, as he turned the contaminated water sweet, what he was doing was he was showing, in contrast, his faithfulness to his people, despite their perception that he had abandoned them. I think one thing that's very helpful for us to see here is that God's first response to his grumbling children wasn't discipline or correction. Rather, it was grace and provision. Now, as a parent, I think about those times when, I mean, my kids are all mostly grown. Um, Even my youngest is much larger than me now. But when they were little, I remember this experience quite vividly. They were out playing, and one of them would fall and scrape their knee. And typically, what would happen is their response would not fit the injury, right? We would know this because there was screaming, and there was tears, and you would have thought that they had cut off their leg, right? Now, how should a parent respond to this kind of experience? Now, I think a bad parent would respond probably this way. They would maybe yell at them, stop your crying. Don't be a baby, right? Or a bad parent might, might rub some salt in the wound and say, you think this is bad? I'll give you a real reason to cry. Now, we've probably observed parents do that. And in our weaker moments, if we're honest, those of us who are parents, we may have actually parented that way a time or two. But I think that we would all acknowledge that that's, that's bad parenting, actually. That a good parent calmly wipes the tears from the cheeks of their crying child. They sit their child in the lap and put a Band-Aid over the scrape and explain, everything's going to be okay. It's not that big of a deal. Now, what's helpful for us to see is that God the Father is also a good parent who lovingly provides for us even when our response is faithless. Even when our response doesn't fit the injury. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So one thing I think is really important for us to see, both in 2 Corinthians 1 and also in Exodus 15, is that our Father's first priority is to meet our needs. It's to comfort us. 
in our affliction, even if we don't necessarily deserve it. Now, there's a tendency for some people, based on maybe how you were raised or what you'd read, to read the Old Testament and think it's only about an angry God who is pouring out his wrath on people. But what I hope you see as you carefully read the text is that it's abundantly clear that God is a good father who, yes, he is corrective. Yes, there is a time for discipline, but he's also exceedingly patient and kind. And so his first response to his thirsty and grumbling children is to what? It's to give them a drink. Now, can you think about this truth in your own life as well? Though we all suffer in a broken world, though you're going to be tempted to grumble, you have a good father who loves you and who longs to provide for you in your time of need. He may not always rescue you from affliction, but he longs to comfort you through his presence with a good friend, through his presence in his word, as he speaks to you through his spirit, as you cry out to him in prayer. He provides for you in the normal graces of life, just to live another day, just to breathe another breath, and sometimes in the miraculous as well. Your father loves you. He's a father of mercy who longs to comfort you in your time of need. So we've seen the problem, and we've seen the provision of a good and loving father. And now this leads to a promise. Let's look at verses uh, 25, the latter half of 25 on through 26. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. So what we need to see here is that after God meets the urgent need, he now challenges Israel with a test. And I need to clarify uh, that God's purpose for this test was not to produce failure, as we sometimes think when God tests us. James 1.13 says that God does not tempt. In other words, he doesn't test us for the purpose of causing us to stumble. God tests us and tested Israel to reveal to them the weakness of their faith and their need for him. And so in verse 26, what God was doing was he was building their faith. He says, if you listen to my voice and do that which pleases me, I'll never put on you the diseases that I put on the Egyptians. Now, it's helpful to remember something else here. You see, Israel, they knew what it meant to please and follow God. But they had not yet been given the law, had they? That's coming later, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law and all of these commands that we read about later. So God's command here is not reflecting on that. He's not reflecting on a set of prescribed rules, but about simple obedience and faith and following. Now, according to the Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart, 
He said that people often read verse 26 incorrectly, as if God is making a guarantee that if you're faithful as a believer, you can't get sick. And that if you do, that you'll be healed. And he explains that a more accurate translation of this original Hebrew in verse 26 would read more like this. Any illness I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you. For I am Yahweh, your physician, your doctor. He then goes on to explain this, and I'll have you follow along with me. The promise here was not that Yahweh would never allow those who place their faith in him to get sick. It was that the Israelites would be free from having to worry about the plagues. God inferred that he would not become angry at them in such a way as to subject them to the miseries he had subjected the Egyptians to, if they were indeed loyal and obedient. His promise to serve as their doctor healer also was not a promise that if anyone among them ever got sick, he would immediately heal that person. It was instead an assertion that it was to him they must turn for healing. If they found themselves afflicted as a result of sin, the story of the healing from snake bites in Numbers 21, 1 through 9 is exactly the sort of situation envisioned in these words. So what this means is that the promise of God here, it's less about you do your part and I'll do mine. It's more about put your faith in me. Follow me as the one alone who can heal your disease. Now, to illustrate this, let me summarize very, very briefly what Numbers 21, what that story that he referred to is all about, because it'll bring some insight to us here. This took place later in Israel's story. They're now a nomadic tribe wandering again through this wilderness, and their circumstances force them to take a particularly difficult route through a treacherous uh, part of the wilderness. And and this made them very bitter and very angry with God and and with Moses. And so God disciplined him. He felt their lack of faith and their anger towards him, and he disciplined them by sending snakes, and these snakes began to bite them, and, and people began to die. And what happened is the Israelites realized what they had done. They realized that their attitude was so, so angry towards God that they had sinned against him. And so what they do? They asked his forgiveness. Please forgive us, Lord. And so what the Lord instructed them to do was to put a bronze snake on the top of a pole and to elevate it in the camp so that whenever anyone was bit from that point forward, all they needed to do was to look upon that bronze serpent and they would be healed. So what this illustrates for us is that God invites us to obediently follow him. And as we do that, as we look to him for healing, he will forgive us. He will heal us from sin. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't feel the sting of sin. And it doesn't mean that we won't continue to have brokenness in our experience. But it does mean that God may, God will, first of all, bring spiritual healing and may, by his grace, bring physical healing and will one day bring complete and full healing into our lives as we follow him, as we hope 
in the one-day hope of being restored and being remade by his grace and through his mercy. And it's no coincidence that Jesus borrows from the same imagery, the same visual of a serpent on a pole in John 12, 32, where he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus was saying in that statement that like that bronze serpent that was raised up after the bite of that sting of the snake, that he would be lifted up as well. He'd be lifted up on a cross. And that all you would need to do is look to him in faith and you would be healed from your sin. You see, the ultimate act of healing through faith is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ where he took upon himself the punishment we deserve for our sin in order to free us, what? From the sting of death. Now, it's interesting to me as we go back now to Exodus 15 and look at verse 27, that God now follows this promise with even greater reward. Okay, and it brings us back to this beautiful picture of a good and loving father as he not only sweetens the bitter water, but he now leads them to Elam. Look at verse 27. Then, then they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now there's just not one pool, right? There's 12 fresh springs. And this water was surrounded by palm trees. I don't know about you, but this time in February, man, I'm looking for places like this to go and be. And, and, and it was beautiful for them as well. Now, interestingly, the numbers 12 and 70 are typical symbolic numbers in the Bible and in Hebrew literature that point to the fullness of God. And even if we don't spiritualize these numbers, it's interesting that there is a spring for every tribe of Israel. And there is a tree for every elder in Israel. And this seems to suggest the fullness of God's provision for all of his people. You see, it's not just that Israel is delivered by grace at the Red Sea. It's that Israel is spared and kept and preserved by his grace in the wilderness. And isn't it the same for us? We're not only justified by grace, but we're sanctified, we're held. We are kept and we are preserved by his grace. Now, I want to close by just helping you to think through the application, uh, thinking that there are a few different kinds of people in the room here today. And the first is the unbeliever. I know in the size of this room, there are some of you for whom the idea of faith in God is a new concept. And what I want to encourage you to consider is the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says to me, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we referred to throughout the service, I mean, the world is broken. It doesn't take a genius to see that. One of the things that I often can't wrap my mind around is how those without faith, at least without faith in God, how is it they make it through this hard and broken world? 
You see, Jesus, he not only promises forgiveness for your sin, but he promises that as you look to him in faith, that he can secure in you the hope of heaven, the hope of an eternity with no more sin and no more suffering and no more crying and no more pain. What amazing hope that can be found in Jesus. So that's for the unbeliever among us. But I also want to appeal to the afflicted. And I think this applies to all of you because some of you may not be in the place of suffering right now, but I can guarantee you that it's coming. It's coming. And my question for you is this. Are the struggles of your life going to make you bitter or better? In other words, are you coping to the struggle in your life by holding on to anger against God and others, or are you looking to God in faith? Are you finding in Him your strength and your healing? Another thing that I find very interesting about today's text is that Israel's grumbling was against Moses even though he was nothing more than a mediator to God. So though it would have been more honest, I think, for them to grumble directly towards God, they took out their frustration on his servant Moses. Now I want you to think about this significance in your life as well. It's very common when someone is hurting, either by someone else's evil done to them or perhaps by a circumstance or perceived injustice, what do they tend to do? They tend to take it out in frustration on either the person who hurt them or on just those who are around them. There's an old saying that hurt people hurt people. What often, though, bubbles to the surface as you draw closer to these situations is that their real issue of anger is with God. That those who are hurting are really nothing more than using those around them as a punching bag for their anger against their Heavenly Father. And what we saw in today's text is this. That until you answer the question, is God the Father loving? Is God the Father trustworthy? Is His grace and healing enough, even in the midst of your trial? Until you answer those questions by faith, you're going to continue to be chained to these circumstances that enslave you. You'll continue to lash out in anger at those around you, all the while rejecting the real solution to your problem. A solution that can be found in learning to love and trust your Father and Healer, who alone can turn your grumbling into joy. Let's pray. Lord, I'd lift up those today who are seated in this audience. Lord, as we seek to better understand and realize the truth that is before us. And I I pray, Lord, for those who are here um, who have been just living their lives in faith of some other path, somehow bringing them a sense of happiness. Lord, I think there are some here for whom that describes their life.
And they're here because uh, in a moment of, of struggle, in a moment of coming to the end of themselves, they thought, well, I should just go give church a try. And Lord, I pray today they would see and hear and believe that in you is comfort and joy. In you is, is the strength that we need to endure the afflictions of this broken world. And in you is the hope of heaven. And Lord, I also want to pray for the afflicted. Because as we thought about at the beginning of this message, we all can relate to this because we all stumble again and again. And yet, Lord, we know that you long for us to come to you in faith, that you long for us to let go of the anger and the bitterness and the, and the sense of entitlement that we have to hold you accountable as though we deserve more or something different. And we're not only putting distance in our relationship with you, Lord, but we're hurting those around us. And I, I really pray, Lord, for just soft hearts in this room this morning, that you'd soften hard hearts that are striving to control or striving to somehow justify. And Lord, I pray as we turn to you and as we embrace that you love us and that you care for us and that you want what's best for us, that we might cling to you and in you find our healing and our reward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.